This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. Get involved with the debate by tweeting at Blue Moon Podcast and check out exclusive interviews on bluemoonpodcast.com. It's your club and this is your show. If you thought some of our recent discussions were nostalgia central, then you ain't seen nothing yet. Today we're hailing a black cab and heading straight down memory lane to a time when City were good again, but also very bad at the same time. I promise you it'll all make sense soon. Welcome to this week's Blue Moon Podcast, where we're going to be taking a look at one of the club's most unusual seasons, winding the clocks back by around 20 years. It was the time when they'd only just got back into the top flight after relegation in 1996 and back-to-back promotions from the third tier. Yes, this week's episode is a 2000-2000 one season special, all because of a Twitter thread that I posted of some very odd things that happened to them that term and it's been getting some attention. And with football on hold, we've got the chance to do it and do it properly. I'm your host David Mooney, with me is City fan and one football journalist Dan Burke. Hello. How are you doing mate? I'm alright, how are you? I'm not too bad, thanks, not too bad. Now before we crack on to uh, the main bit of the show, let's uh, let, let's talk about a little bit of the news of this week because uh, we understand that the Premier League will be discussing trying to finish the season before June the 30th to avoid complications with player contracts. Um, in terms of, of where you think we're at, Dan, do you, do you think this is feasible or do you think this is a bit pie in the sky? I think it's a bit pie in the sky. I'd be very surprised if they were able to do that. I mean, they're going to have to squeeze... Um, the talk is that they would have probably, if they did do that, they would have to squeeze the, the, the remainder of the season to about five weeks, which I think is possible. But um, I think Kevin De Bruyne was talking uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually, and he was saying, like, it's kind of unrealistic because the players need time to kind of get back up to speed. Um, if you just sort of throw them all onto the pitch after having had such a long hiatus, people are going to start getting injured straight away and, and all that sort of stuff. So squeezing the whole, the whole season into five weeks just so they can. avoid awkwardness uh, regarding player contracts seems a little bit stupid to me really and I don't really I mean I I personally think that they have to finish this season and I don't really think the knock-on effect for in terms of when the next season starts is really that important personally I think it's just the priority should be getting this this season finished in a reasonable um, amount of time and then then they can worry about you know the start of next season maybe have a, a sort of truncated uh, next season or, or something like that instead I, I was um, going to say in terms of like I know it sounds a bit like kicking the can down the road but surely this problem is a problem for next season not for this season because you think so wouldn't you? like uh, next season if you if if you haven't started it you can come up with a way to to do it fairly mm. whereas this one's been started so it just you just finish it and then you know, if you have to, like you say, if you have to truncate next season, then, then go for it. I mean, it's uh, June the thirtieth is is only seventy five days away as we record this. City have got right. ten games left, plus the FA Cup campaign and Champions League campaigns to fit in as well. It'd be like a game every two or three days. Yeah, well, I reckon if they were to do that, the Champions League would take on a different format. I reckon they would probably have like a sort of they've been talk of a like mini tournament happening over one weekend or something like that. Which I think would be one way of doing it. I wouldn't surprise me if they just they just scrapped the FA Cup this year if they did that. Um, but you kind of think if next season is the priority, then why not just kind of scrap the, the whole of the rest of this season and just I don't know give Liverpool the title and and that's it. And every everyone else who was in the relegation position stays up, and everyone who was in a promotion position unfortunately just has to like it and and sort of take it on the chin and. Uh, and, and try again next season. Yeah, I'm actually a big fan of promoting those teams as well and then having a bigger division and, and more relegation spots. Yeah. You know, real yeah, honestly or or or, have, or or you know, have a have a much bigger playoff for everything. Playoff for everything. Playoff for the title, <laughs> that's what we should do. Yeah, I'd be I'd be in favour of that. Can you yeah, imagine we'd the probably fume. still lose it though, Yeah, we? can you imagine the fume if City went on to win a two legged tie with <laughs> Liverpool and win the title this season? <laughs> um just a quick note on all this as well, because a lot of people listening to this will be going, well it's it's not actually that important. Nobody nobody really cares about it. And I, I totally get I understand that point of view, but there's nothing wrong in talking about it, is there? No, not at all. I mean, we we can talk about it and speculate about it, but like I say, there are people whose job it is to actually get to the bottom of all this. So, as much as it, you know, people's health and safety and, and is more important, and I think this period of time has has allowed a lot of people to take stock of of their own personal situations and their lives and, and what's important to them. And a lot of people would say football isn't that important in the grand scheme of things. Obviously, it has a, a social importance and all that kind of thing, and and it is a, a form of escapism and entertainment that people need in their lives. But yeah, in the grand scheme of things, it isn't that important. But we still do need to sort all this stuff out. We can't just like let it drag on and and, and let it uh, you know go on without a decision being made because 
we're going to come to a point where a decision has to be made. Yeah. Now, uh, before we move on, Dan, you escaped the Blue Moon Podcast Toilet Roll Kick-Up Challenge the last time you were on because we hadn't launched it by then. That's right. Um, yeah. But it's time to find out where you sit on the leaderboard. Uh, oh, currently God. at the top is Richard Burns. He's got eight. Uh, then it's Duncan Alexander from Opta with four. I'm still clinging on to third with uh, my three. And last week, Stephen McInerney couldn't get into the medal points, scoring just two. So uh, you've got one attempt. Um, you, you've you got a toilet roll to hand, I believe, there. I do, yes. Um, so uh, you have to give us a count out loud as you do it. So um, just kind of get yourself in position, then in your own time, uh, off you go. All right. Before I do this, I just want to say I, I am very sceptical about Richard Burns' eight score, by the way. I think there's, there's been some sort of foul play going on there. Or, you know, I, I would like to... Uh, refer that to the court of arbitration for sport. I think at some point. Well, when when the courts reopen, we will uh, we'll, we'll put it to them and, and, and kind of we'll get it on the list. That's what we'll do. All right. I'm, I'll, if you, I'll if you score myself now, then. if you score more than eight, though, nobody cares, do you? That's true. But I don't think that's going to happen. But we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Let's find out. All right. Here we go. Take my slippers off first. One, two, three. 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 Ah, uh, now that that ties you in third with me. Okay, so, so do we have to have like a penalty shootout at some point? Um, yeah, I think if it finishes with us with us tied in third, then we can do that thing where you know the end of a pub quiz where everybody goes, "Oh, you've got two teams in third. Should we have a, a playoff question, or should they just share the prize and then they decide <laughs> to have a playoff because there's no point in sharing seven pounds between <laughs> two teams?" Yeah, uh, well, I think we'll we'll leave it for now, and then uh, we'll find out a bit later down the line if uh, if we need to get you on as a guest on the final one of the uh, of, of the isolation podcast series. Okay. Um, uh, to play off for the medal place, but as it stands, joint third with me, so it's a not I'm bad. I'm all right with that, to be honest. Yeah, I thought it was going to do even worse than you, so yeah. <laughs> not bad at all. Uh, right, yeah. so on to the main talking point of this week's show. Uh, we're going back to the 2000-2001 season. This is all because I posted a thread about 18 months ago of gifts that I made from a VHS of highlights that I'd recorded off the TV throughout that year, and it's been getting some attention on Twitter, so we thought we'd go back and look at that season a bit more in depth. So I'm get, like, just first off, before we start, um, a little bit of context, down about that about that season City were back in the Premier League after four seasons away uh, it was a second promotion on the bounce they'd, they'd gone up at Wembley in 99 then they went up at Blackburn uh, the year later uh, they'd spent around 12.6 million that summer which is not a, for the time is not a small amount of money they brought in uh, Alfie Harland George Ware Paolo Wanchop uh, Steve Howie Paul Ritchie Richard Dunn and Lauren Charvet that summer. Darren Huckabee joined um, halfway through the season in the January. They also brought in Andre Konchelskis, remember him? Uh, Egg Lostenstad was uh, was brought in on loan as well. Um, and they ended up finishing 18th on 34 points. They trailed Derby, who, were, who, who stayed up ahead of them uh, by eight points in the end. Um, so that, I mean, when you think back to that time, how, how, do, you, how do you feel about, about that season? Uh, it was a it was a weird one um, because it's funny you mentioned it was like four years away from the Premier League that year because you know we were in our sort of early teens twelve or thirteen we would have been that season and it felt like a lot longer that we'd been away from the Premier League you know life feels a lot longer when you're a kid I think doesn't it and um, I think it was it was so exciting for City to be back in the Premier League and back in the sort of forefront of people's consciousness again and um, and it, it started reasonably promisingly and then. The sort of reality hit in quite quickly that season, I think, didn't it? It, it was quite, it was, it was apparent by about October that they were nowhere near good enough to be in the <laughs> Premier League, and the rest of it was just kind of waiting to be relegated. I think so. It's kind of a, yeah, real mixed emotions for me that season. I think. Yeah, well, before we get going into the topic properly, um, I've put together a little bit of a music mix about what was in the UK charts at that time. So uh, oh. let's have a listen. We can have a bit of a feel, a bit, a bit of a reminisce about that time. Lady. Dan, I don't know if that makes you feel old or not. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. 
Um, yeah, so let's let's get into the. Uh, it, it, it's the year two thousand. You know, um, mm. City have just gone back up to the Premier League. How were you feeling at the start of that season? Uh, I was still scared about the Millennium Bug, I think, but <laughs> in, in football terms, yeah, it was. Yeah, like I say, it was. I was. I was excited for City to be back in the Premier League, um, to see City on match of the day, uh, that kind of thing. To, to get the uh, the Panini sticker book, the Premier League sticker book, and 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 City be in it. Uh, it, it was. It was a really exciting time, and. Um, yeah, like I say, it's a shame that it, the, the excitement wore off quite quickly. I think. Yeah, the match of the day thing was was the reason why I said that that, that I, I posted gifts from um, highlights that I'd recorded off the telly. I'd recorded my, I've recorded City's highlights on Match of the Day every week because um, I, just because I could at that stage, and I, that, that's how much of a City nerd I was at that time. <laughs> Um, still am, I suppose, really. But yeah. uh, you know, I, I I couldn't get enough of the fact that I could now watch them again on on highlights that weren't just in the local news roundup or anything like that. Mm. And also, um, it, it turned out to be quite a quite a good omen because I don't think the club released a, a, a season review VHS at the end of that season because it had been so it been that bad. <laughs> they yeah, they, did, didn't, they didn't. Yeah, because I well, I, well, I, I certainly because we used to buy them every year that year, and I don't remember having that one. And I tried to look it up. Um, on on YouTube uh, in preparation for this show, and couldn't find anything either. So yeah, don't blame them really because they only won four games all season or something daft like that, didn't they? Goodness, it, it was that run in the October, like you mentioned before. Uh, I mm. think they lost six in the on, on the bounce, and in there was a, I think it was a six nil hammering by Chelsea and a five nil hammering by Arsenal. Four one at West Ham, I remember yeah. they lost as well. Yeah, and you just kind kind of go, goodness me, you know, mm. it's like I mean, at least at least they weren't Derby two thousand and seven level. But yeah. it was it wasn't great. Um, I'll tell you the one that always sticks out for me in that run as well was um the three two defeat at home to Ipswich. Do you remember that one? Yeah, my dad turned he... up late for that and, and only saw a score score saw a score two in the second half and thought <laughs> that well if they've been playing this well, how are they three two down? And they just that yeah, they hadn't played well at all. Yeah, because well obviously Ipswich came up with us, didn't they? And they finished sixth that season, so it was like a, a real sort of difference between the two clubs that had come up. One of them did really well and one of them really tanked. And I think it, the expectations were, were probably quite the opposite at the start of the season. I remember watching that game in the Gene Kelly stand at Main Road and some guy just going, sell them all, they're all <laughs> crap, get rid of the lot of them. <laughs> do you remember that game? I think that game was the first time I remember. Do you, I, I, don't know if you, I don't remember this old rule that was there. If you showed dissent at a free kick, it could be moved forward 10 yards. Vaguely, yeah. But, and that happened, did it? It happened because I think yeah. City's second goal um, came from a, a free kick that was moved forward. And, and, you know, don't get me wrong, it's very easy to pick on this one referee in particular, but I think it was Mike Dean. Was it? I think Mike <laughs> Dean, I, th- I think the Ipswich player showed a bit of dissent, I don't know, like, like shouting at the referee or whatever. And I just remember Mike Dean picking the ball up, striding forward towards the goal 10 yards, and the crowd just going, way in that, in that way that the crowd does. And then Mark Kennedy just chipping a free kick into the box, and I think Steve Howey scored. <laughs> Mike Dean probably made that rule up himself, didn't he? Probably the Mike <laughs> Dean rule, yeah. yeah I'd completely forgotten about that, so you mentioned it then. Um, looking back, though, do you, th- do you think City went up too soon? It, it was it was kind of clear they weren't ready for the Premier League. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they came up from the second, the third division by the skin of their teeth, and then they were they were good in the in the in the first division the following season, but not brilliant. You know, they did that that win on the final day at Blackburn to seal promotion. Um, you know, I think it's a cliche then and now. Um, the, the golfing class is so big from the, the what is now the Championship to the Premier League, and I just don't I don't think City had the the squad or the managers to cope with it. Um, but it's one of those you, you never know what might have happened if they stayed in Division One for another season. They might have gone up the following year and then been better equipped to handle the Premier League, or they might never have gone up and they'd still be languishing down there in the lower leagues. Now it's really, really hard to say. So um, yeah, there were six regulars in that Premier League side. Uh, Wikipedia has a um, it, it makes a, a team in a four four two formation based on uh, number of uh, the number of appearances for that season, mm. um, and six of that team uh, also played in the ninety nine. Division Two third tier playoff final, um, and it kind of showed, didn't it? Yes, I'd be interested to know who that six were: um, Gota, Dickov, Horlock, Vikin, Zedjil. Uh, I've, I've got a feeling Edgil wasn't. Let me let me go and check. So it was Nicky Weaver, uh, Gerard Vikins, Kevin Horlock, Jeff Whitley, Paul Dickoff, and Sean Gota with the six. Right, okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm surprised Whitley played that much in that Premier League season. Actually, yeah, he, he seems to have been quite a regular in that team. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so says yeah. it all really, doesn't it? I suppose it does. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, what, what do you remember about going back to Main Road in that era? Because uh, we talked in the Patreon show about the Blackburn promotion year, and I remember going back to Main Road and, and feeling good about going to Main Road uh, again. 
but suddenly City weren't winning again. Yeah, um, yeah, it was. I mean, I think like the, the tone was set for that season. The the four nil defeat at Charlton on the opening day, um, like because we'd come up with Charlton as well, hadn't we? We'd beat. I remember we'd beaten them at the Valley in the promotion season, and we both. Play. I remember that being a bit disappointing that we got a, a fellow uh, newly promoted team on the, the opening day because you wanted like Chelsea away or something, you know, a proper like Premier League team. Um, and then they got beat by Charlton. I remember just thinking, oh, maybe this season isn't going to be quite as, as fun as we, we hoped it would be. Um, but yeah, I don't remember I went, to that. Wrote... I, went to, I went to that game at the Valley and I remember the fans coming out of it afterwards singing the Premier League is upside down because City were bottom. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get your um, petrol money refunded by Alfinger Harland? Did um, you hear that story? That I did hear to... that story. I'd, I'd forgotten it happened. I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, I'll be, I'll be honest, at 12 or 13, I didn't do the driving. So um, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't top enough. of my priority, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, in terms of the atmosphere at Main Road, I don't remember it being like a very vitriolic place that year. I think I think the fans were quite accepting of the level that City were at and it wasn't Premier League level. And it, it seems to be like generally quite a supportive atmosphere, if, if I remember correctly. I remember like the last game of the season against Chelsea. Um, you mentioned in the Patreon bit that we um, that you went on the pitch against Birmingham the previous season and that was the only time you'd been on the pitch. The only time I went on the pitch was after the last game of the season against Chelsea. Um, everyone ran on for some reason and it was quite a fun atmosphere that day. And we, still, we had a, a clump of... Um, Main road turf in a margarine tub in our back garden for quite a while <laughs> after that game. That we just because everyone just went on and was ripping up the pitch basically. Wait, so uh, so every, normal people flood onto the pitch to celebrate a promotion. You flooded on to celebrate a relegation. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, it was a bit like you said on the Patreon. We sort of like we hesitated. Like, should we go on? Everyone ran on the pitch. Should we go on? And we're like, yeah, go on. We might never get another <laughs> chance to do this. Yeah. I remember. I think. I think some kid kicked Gianfranco Zola up the arse as well as he was running off the pitch. Good. Which was uh, well. You don't like Zola, do you? Um, I'm, I'm completely indifferent to it, but I like oh. I like a uh, bit of football shithousery from time to yeah, time, and that's enough. that's right up there for me. <laughs> um, now, when I interviewed him in 2013, I asked Joe Royal whether or not he felt City had gone back up to the Premier League too soon at that point, and uh, this is what he said. You can never say too early. There's never the right time and the wrong time. It's when it comes, and the sooner the better. I mean, it might have come too early for us financially, and certainly when I see the, the spending... After I'd gone with Keegan, first of all, and then you've got to say that the club was probably underfunded still or, or, or saddled with debt to um, to go into the Premiership. But we did bring players in. It's a hard one, you know, when you're promoted because you've got a group of players, particularly after two promotions who've got you there, who are high on spirit, not short on ability, some of them kids who are unproven at, at that level, you know, some lads like the Fentons and, and, and the Whitleys who've taken us so far, you know, Lee Crooks to a lesser extent, you know, young Gary Mason, you know, guys like that who'd all come through. Nicky Weaver had proven himself for the, when we got to the Premier Division. I'm sure Nicky would say himself that, you know, it probably went a little bit to his head for a while and, and, and he lost he lost his, his concentration on the job. But... Uh, I've no doubt also that Nicky Weaver should have been an England goalkeeper. So we, we had this group of players who all loved the club, uh, loved playing for the club. We needed we, we, we needed players of proven ability at that club. You know, I brought in George Weir, brought in Paolo Wanchop, brought in Steve Howie, who none of whom were particularly expensive buys, but were all experienced at that level. And... Uh, you know, I, we started off okay, and and I, I I don't know where or why. I don't know how the George Weir thing affected us, but it but it did somehow or other. It causes out that you know it, it certainly affected Paolo Wanchop, who was uh, in awe of George Weir, and I, I still don't know how much influence George had on him. But it was never quite the same with with Paolo after George had gone. Um, Andy Morrison's continuing knee problems. Richard Jobson was playing at that level when he had no right to be playing. I mean, his ankle was that bad. Jobbo, every time he put his boots on, he was a hero to play for us, but he, you know, he gave us his best. Uh, the GOAT scored goals, you know, having been told by fans when we signed him he wasn't good enough, then being told by fans he wasn't good enough to play in the third division, and then back in the second, and, and here he was scoring goals again in the Premier. And uh, and a lovely man, you know. But all round, we didn't 
we didn't quite hack it. You know, whether we um, whether we should have spent more, whether we should have spent different, doesn't really matter. But bottom line was we didn't do it. <laughs> pledge of $2 a month, you can hear our weekly bonus show on a wide range of city topics. There's more details on patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. Joe Royal speaking to us there. Now, uh, just moving on to another kind of topic of that era. Um, this comes from Anthony Birds on Twitter. He asks, how did the George Ware signing come about? Was he one that Joe wanted or was it thrust on him? And why does he think that it didn't last more than a few games? I've been trying to interview George Ware for some time. He's a bit busy now being the president of Liberia and everything. Um, But here he is scoring his first and only Premier League goal for City. Brilliantly done. We are 2-1. George Weir's first goal for Manchester City. The deficit is hard. But got past Song, drew Honcho in and fired low past Festival. And George Weir scores for Manchester City to make it 2-1. Dan, what do, you, what do you remember of that signing? What did you think of it when, when the news was announced? Well, I think I've said this on the podcast before, actually, but that is probably one of the most mind-blowing moments of my life. <laughs> <laughs> being, I mean, I, I guess I've had a pretty uneventful life, if that's the case, really. But being, I remember uh, my dad waking me up in the school holidays um, and saying, Dan, City have signed George Weyer. And I just could not believe what I was hearing. And then he showed me the paper to prove it. And I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I mean, obviously, when he signed for City, he was at the tail end of his career. He'd, he'd, he'd played for Chelsea beforehand. Yeah. Done all right there, I think. Um, but what was he, about 34? When we yeah, he, he, like he, was, he was certainly a veteran, let's put it that way. Yeah. I mean, let's... let's Because there'll be younger listeners that, that don't understand this kind of this kind of era and, and what, we, what we mean by it being a mind-blowing transfer. George Ware is the only player that's ever played for City that has won you know, FIFA World Player of the Year, what I think is the Ballon d'Or now. Um, yeah. and, Which is mad, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's crazy. And yeah. like he won it in '95 or so with uh, mm. with AC Milan. He like this was also a time where you couldn't follow transfer stories like you can now. It, like yeah. they only broke when the signing was announced. You didn't really have the rumor mill like that 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 you've got now, where every day you can find out who's linked to to who and who might be moving where. There was none of that. There, there was no social media, nothing. It was literally back page of the paper. City have signed George Ware. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it came as such a such a surprise and was so so exciting. Um, you know, because I'd like a lot of sort of nineties kids. I'd grown up watching football Italia on Channel Four, and the, the image that always sticks in your mind of George Ware is that amazing end to end goal that he scored for AC Milan. Um, so I was like, oh, you know, we were signing this brilliant player, um, and I went to the um, Dennis Owens testimonial at Old Trafford, and it, that was like his. I don't know if it was his first appearance for City, but it was the first time that I certainly saw him play for City. And I remember very early in the game, him and Sean Wright Phillips like linking up really well, like playing a nice one-two, and looking at my dad as if to say, "Like, what, what are we, what are we witnessing here? <laughs> City are good. This is amazing." Um, and I, I also have a distinct memory of us. Um, if we didn't sign one Paolo one shot the same day as George Weah, we signed him in the same week. And I remember going somewhere in the car with my dad, and we were listening to a radio phone in on GMR. And some some guy rang up saying, uh, "City have signed these two world class players. We're going to challenge United for the title this season." <laughs> <laughs> I remember reading a four four two article uh, a, a few years ago now um, about about that that kind of City yo yo time, mm. and. Um, there's a line in it. It's one of the best pieces of writing that I can ever remember. I've never found the article online, I can't, so I can't credit who who wrote it. Um, but I but the line in it, I've I've almost committed to memory because it was that good. It was it it was the way that they they said all about the successes of the previous years in very short sentences, and then it was uh, they signed Ballon, uh, previous Ballon d'Or, uh, previous FIFA World Player of the Year, George Ware, Paolo Wanchop was added to the the ranks. And then the line was, even the manager was talking about a top six finish, full stop. City were relegated again, full stop. And it just like it <laughs> sums up that, that 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 era perfectly. Yeah. It's just I mean, 
for a long time being a City fan, the, the summer was the most exciting part of supporting the club, really, wasn't it? When we would sign players, and it's the, you know those summers when it's kind of exciting and intoxicating, and anything feels possible. And nowadays, we don't really have that anymore because the excitement all happens during the season, and then in the summer, we just had like maybe one or two players as a sort of squad building exercise. <laughs> we don't really sign these like marquee name players anymore. Um, not that we like ever. Did. I mean, George Weah was was a name player, but he was not not a marquee uh, signing. Not was a it, marquee yeah. signing, and it it, it, proved, it it proved out to be a, yeah. a not a good signing, really. Yeah. Well, when when that question came in, um, I also I, I I texted Joe Royal to find out if there was any kind of interesting story behind it, uh, and he basically it, it comes down to George Weah was free. Uh, he'd done all right at Chelsea, and he just couldn't say he couldn't say no when the agent got in touch to say, you know, would you fancy taking on George Ware on a free transfer? Mm. Um, it didn't really end particularly well. He he left quite acrimoniously in uh, just after just a couple of months, and then some of his quotes. Um, I mean, George Ware doesn't hold back in some of these quotes uh, that he, that he made at the time. Uh, he said, I, "I I was made to feel old and of no real use to the club. I felt like I was being used for publicity to attract other players." Uh, he also went on to say, I could have stayed at AC Milan, but instead I sacrificed $2 million for them in order to come here. I didn't leave that for somebody to tell me to shut up and fuck off. Um, <laughs> he also said, uh, do not think, like, like, like this is after City's relegation as well, he said, uh, do not think I'd be happy to see them go down just because I was so poorly treated there. I regret what happened to the players I left behind, but if I'm to be honest, I'm not in the least bit surprised by their situation. I do not feel I have anything to reproach myself for. Um, that's a man who's who's kind of steadfast in his belief that he was wronged at that club, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we don't know what goes on behind the scenes, but the story at the time was that he got benched for the... Um, we beat Bradford 2-0 at home, didn't we? And he, he he got benched for that. I don't even know if he came off the bench. And the the, the, the legend has it that he kind of saw his arse and was like, I didn't come here to sit on the bench against Bradford. I'm off, kind of thing. Um, I mean, I could I could well imagine Joe Royal telling him to shut up and fuck off in the same <laughs> sentence, couldn't you? So, <laughs> well, I asked I asked Joe Royal about George Ware's departure. Obviously, we don't have uh, Ware's side of the story to to refute what what Royal says, and those quotes are pretty strong in in suggesting how he might have felt about it all. Um, but here's what what Joe Royal told me in 2013. There was no ill feeling or anything at the time. We, we'd had a game when I didn't particularly want George to play, um, but I didn't want to upset him either. Uh, and I tried to explain to him, I thought this was a game too far for him and he he looked tired and he was tired and he, and he shouldn't have started. But uh, equally, I didn't want to take away his, his belief. I mean, he, he was getting on, to say the least. He was 33, 34, I don't know. And an ex-World Player of the Year, so you have to give him that respect. And came in at half time, and there was there was shouting. And he later said, "I swore at him," which I didn't. It was another member of staff who swore at him. You know, we we were all getting very angry and very frustrated at the time. And uh, he all of a sudden we we got the news from his agent that he wanted to go, uh, and he had a move fixed up in France. And this was in two days. So whether or not. He'd seen this coming and had arranged the move to France. Um, I don't know whether he became disillusioned and somebody cottoned on to this and asked him to go to France. I don't know. But I've not spoken to him since because we haven't spoken to each other since. But for no other reason, I fully respected and, uh, and just admired his talent so much. But it was his fitness levels that were down, you know, and we're never going to be quite the same because he was 34, 35. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. Joe Royal speaking about uh, the George Ware departure. It's interesting how um, Royal still speaks of him in quite a respectful way. Well, it's not, it's completely not the other way around. Yeah, that, that really surprised me that, yeah. I mean, I think like, you know, Joe Royal was a, a good manager for City, but I think he sort of comes from that kind of stable of managers, that era of managers where there was no great, there wasn't a great deal of like tactical thinking going on. It was just kind of let's kind of get some some name players who, when you're a club like City, are usually the wrong side of thirty and put them on the pitch and hope that they just kind of do the job for them. And then I guess George Ware had probably been used to working for a different style of manager and, and there was a bit of a personality clash there, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the list of number 22 shirts at, at City is very, very weird. I'm not going <laughs> to lie to you. Uh, it, it, like, it goes George Ware, Richard Dunn, Greg Cunningham, 
who right who remembers him? Um, Gail Clichy and then Benjamin Mendy. Yeah. So what? Greg Cunningham was a left back as well, wasn't he? Yeah. So it's like it suddenly became a left back shirt in what two thousand and nine. <laughs> yeah. Well, my dad used to joke that it was uh, it was Richard Dunn's weight on the back of his shirt, which I think is, is a bit unfair. But <laughs> that's yeah. un- that is unfair. <laughs> Speaking of Richard Dunn and, and kind of that era, um, like there was there was always question marks over how strict Joe Royal was with the players, and the allegations often made that there was a drinking culture at City at that time. It's something that I asked Nicky Weaver about when I interviewed him a few years ago, and he was often seen as one of the main culprits, along with uh, Richard Dunn, as, as somebody else who was who was seen as that uh, that sort of that that figure. Um, this is what Weaver had to say about it. Yeah, I think that, that what disappointed a lot of a lot of them. Listen, we used to go out a lot. The, the, we got no qualms about that, but it suddenly goes from we didn't go out any more than when we got promoted the year before. So it suddenly goes from team spirit to a drink culture. It wouldn't happen now because, like, we didn't have, for example, a full time fitness coach then. And although it was all just starting to come in, all that stuff, the diet and and all that real professionalism. Don't I'm not saying we weren't professional because we were. We just used to, you know, if we had a good win on a Tuesday night, we'd go out after. And then suddenly you get into the Premier League and you're losing a few games and. We still obviously went out a little bit and it gets magnified a bit. The, the lads are getting known more and more because they're on telly more because it's in the Premier League. So everywhere you go, people know who you are. And, and we, listen, I'm not saying we didn't go out because we did. And we used to have a good time. Like, as, you know, I mean, I was a young lad like that. Um, but it suddenly went from from being a good team spirit and morale and all that and camaraderie to a drink culture. And I think, and obviously the press love all that sort of thing. So, oh, Joe will get sacked because drink culture and players this and you know I, I was in the paper a few times for some incidents it, it, it marred what had happened the previous two years if you like um, and we perhaps went out a little bit more than we should but it wasn't like you know drink, never drinking like people People said to me oh I see you out night before a game people said they've seen me out at four o'clock in the morning before a game and I'm like I don't think you have you might see me out at four o'clock in the morning after the game but not so people stick 20% on it and all that And but yeah looking back it was just really disappointing, I think more so for, for the gaffer, because it always stuck with him then. And people talk about it now, and we just went up too early. We weren't good enough, and we couldn't recruit enough good players, to, and we just went up too early. Hear all of our City interviews on our website, bluemoonpodcast.com. Dan, do you remember that the, there being kind of those sorts of rumours in the press? Not really. I only really remember hearing about this sort of stuff retrospectively. I think at the time, the sort of team spirit was 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 celebrated, um, and you know, you look at the you know as we talked about in the Patreon show that the um, the, the Blackburn game where they're all celebrating in the dressing room afterwards, they've clearly gone out on the piss after that game, haven't they? And had a great time, and that that was sort of seen as a good thing. But I remember Kevin Keegan reading Kevin Keegan's book, and he wrote about how he had to sell Mark Kennedy to Wolves um, the year after. Uh, they went down and he took over because he was like the ringleader of the the sort of drinking culture and I think he wanted to send a message to the rest of the squad that like if the best player could be sold then no one no one was safe really um but I think but like English I mean it's not it's not just that as well I mean you, you look at um like the people that have spoken about it afterwards Jeff Whitley talked about having a has talked quite honestly and openly about having a, a real problem with drink and drugs mm. uh, Andy Morrison's book goes into very clear detail about what he was like before all of this uh, before this season at City um, Richard Dunn himself was almost sacked by Kevin Keegan for rolling up drunk to a, a training session. So that, like, that, there's almost, there's something in it, surely. Oh yeah, I mean, I think it's it's easy to say like, look at those footballers, weren't they a professional? Isn't it awful kind of thing? But alcoholism is a really serious thing, which affects people from all walks of life. You know, it doesn't matter if you're if if you're a professional sportsman, it doesn't mean you're immune to it. Um, and it, it often goes a lot deeper than people just enjoying a, a night out too much. And I think like English football. In general, had had a, a drinking culture for a long time. If you read um, Paul Lake's book, he talks about when Howard Kendall was city manager. Um, once a week, the whole squad would go straight from training to a bar in town and get absolutely leathered together. And and the the idea behind it was that it was a great way of kind of sorting out problems and settling differences. When everyone's had a drink, they're a bit more, you know, the the lips are a bit looser and they're, they're happy to talk about things a bit more. Um, I think it was it's Arsene Wenger who's like widely credited with bringing lens to that culture in England, isn't it? And the game is remarkably different because of because of his influence in particular. Um, but you know, he, he what, when did he take over Arsenal? Ninety five, ninety six, something like yeah. that. And the fact it was still going on at City in two thousand and one tells you that that kind of culture change didn't happen overnight. 
Yeah, I mean, despite... I mean, look, look at what happened with Derby County last season <laughs> with their players yeah. drink-driving incident. It's still happening, so yeah. Yeah. Um, despite what we said about the core being the same as the third tier, um, it felt like the squad harmony wasn't quite the same. And it was almost, in a weird way, it was almost like there had been too many signings to that, that, that core for the, for the team spirit to be what kind of drove them through. But not enough quality signings made and that, that kind of weird paradox. Yeah, I think it was a bit of like a Frankenstein's monster of a squad that year as well. Like you had a load of sort of lower division jobbers mixed in with kind of Premier League quality players, you know, a former world footballer of the year. <laughs> um, and then they tried to address it, uh, the problems a little bit mid-season. They signed Darren Huckabee in the January, if I recall. Um, and I think Carlo Nash came in mid-season as well, didn't he? Yeah. Um, Andre Konchelskis, Egger lost in stats. <laughs> it was uh, a signing that a player that most people will forget ever played for City. He's up, he's up there with the Peter Beardsley uh, a couple of games, isn't he? Yes, he is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was there was a there was an imbalance in the squad, and that probably did affect things behind the scenes as well. I would, I would imagine. Yeah. Now the uh, the thread that I posted on Twitter, Dan, had a lot of a lot of examples of, of bad luck for City that year. Um, Joe Royal remembers them very clearly. So uh, here's here's what he said. There was a month when everything that could have gone wrong went wrong for us. Danny Teato scored a goal that. Middlesbrough I think it was when he ran from the halfway line went past player after player and smashed the ball into the corner of the net and it was disallowed for Andrzej Kanchelski standing offside on the other side of the pitch and and then we had a goal disallowed I think it was against Tottenham uh, for no reason at all and uh, and they went to the other end and scored in the last minutes and Everything that could have gone wrong went wrong, and that's when you start thinking, you know, maybe Lady Lux decided, you know, that this ain't going to be for us this year. Um, personally, um, my wife was ill; she had cancer. My father also had uh, emphysema and cancer, and it was a hard time. There's no doubt it was a hard time. Uh, Dennis Stewart said in his book that. Um, uh, I'd changed and lost my humour. He might be right, you know, it certainly was a hard time. Please support the show by becoming a backer. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. I think the key one in all of that, Dan, is the uh, the Danny Tiato goal at Middlesbrough. Uh, I think that, <laughs> that might be the best goal that I've ever seen disallowed. <laughs> well, I have another one to add to that, actually. Um, do you remember Richard Dunn's free kick? Oh, actually, yeah. West Brom. Yeah, okay. So Danny Tiato's <laughs> was the second best goal I've ever seen disallowed. <laughs> but yeah, that Danny Tiato one, um, the only clip I could find of this on YouTube is from like an Australian TV news feature about him. And I watched it again yesterday and he's described as sometimes controversial, always hardworking. Which I think probably sums, <laughs> sums Danny Tiato up quite well, doesn't it? <laughs> It's, it's when you watch it though, and you know, like, like when you see him pick pick the ball up in his own half and run and run and run and then slot it into the bottom corner with the knowledge, the pre-existing knowledge that it's going to be flagged for offside. Yeah. You, you think, like, you think, oh well, somebody must run in front of the goalkeeper then or something like that. And it's like, no, there's just nobody else in shot when it happens. And then, yeah, you know, you watch it back, and it's, honestly, it's it's one of the most remarkably bad decisions I've ever seen. It was it it was an era where um, the offside law had been changed a lot, and uh, it was kind of still in the early days of that not interfering with play thing doesn't you know uh, we kind of let it go um let's have a listen to that goal this is uh, this is it uh, from match of the day described by uh, the wonderful commentator Barry Davis Giacco loves these runs is there a finish to it there might be there is no it's been disallowed it's been disallowed the linesman Assistant referee had his flag up on the far side. Well, who was interfering with this? Well, I can only think Huckabee got offside, but really he had no involvement in the play whatsoever. It was such a good run and deserved the goal, but he is offside, he goes for the shot, and I suppose his assistant referee had no choice, but it's really tough on Manchester City, and in particular on Teatro. And then uh, this is the post-match interviews with Danny Tiato and first Terry Venables, who was Borough manager at the time. If one of your players had run in the way that the Australian Danny Tiato did and score a goal like that and to have it wiped off, would you have been sick? I've been sick many times in just a short time I've been here. We've had bad decisions and I'm told we've got to accept them. 
I'm not sure you've answered my question. I think I have. I think you've just got to accept it, haven't you? I mean, we had, um, you know, Swartz knocked the ball out of his hand the other night. We lost two points for that and uh, when we were leading. So, you know, we felt pretty hard done by this year and I suppose we all will. Huckabee, I have to tell you, was offside as you struck the ball. Yeah, it was offside, but um, I'm the one that took it from the halfway line, ran all the way, got past the player, had a shot on target, didn't, didn't go, didn't have any intention of passing the ball. And it's gone in the back of the net, and it's been disallowed, and it's you know, very frustrating to come away with the one result in the end. Is he offside or is he not? What happens if Tiata goes on another one, knocks it across, and he knocks it in the net? What do you do? Is he offside or not? Yes. Well, there yeah. you are then. So there's a case. The referee, um, as we all know, has got a hard job. But that's making it even more difficult because one, on one side you'll agree and the other side you won't on the offside. You know, it's, it's, and then, well, it's a long story, isn't it? Really, we can go on forever. Turn it off and we'll have a chat about this. <laughs> this is the Blue Moon Podcast. Facebook.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. You can tell from the way that Venable speaks there, Dan, can't you, that he knows that goal should have stood. Yeah. Whenever a manager says you've just got to accept it, that's something that managers only say when a decision has gone in their favour, isn't it? It never works <laughs> the other way around. And a manager never says, oh, yeah, you know, we've had that goal disallowed. You've just got to accept it. So, uh, yeah. And uh, I think Tiago himself says that he had no... It's Huckabee who's offside, I think, in the middle, yeah. isn't it? And he says himself that he had no intention of passing to Huckabee. And then um, Venables makes like a bizarre argument that um, if he had passed to him, he would have been offside. But like, yeah, surely that's the whole point. Terry. He didn't pass him, <laughs> did he? He shot. He went in. So. Yeah, uh, th- that Borough game as well is is also uh, home to one of my favourite ever pieces of City action. The 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 the, the gift that sparked off the thread. Uh, yes. it's, a, it's a wonderful goal mouth scramble in Nicky Weaver's penalty area, and I can watch it you know on a loop for 10, 15 minutes and see something different every time. It's just it, it is classic two thousand Premier League shit football, yeah. where when... nobody, nobody can get hold of the ball, and then suddenly Weaver just goes, ah, well. I better dive in on top of all of this <laughs> yeah, and just grab it. What, that's what makes it him diving in at the end. It looks like, uh, did you ever get, used to get those videos like Nick Hancock's football nightmares or yeah. like Danny Baker's <laughs> own goals and gaffes? It looks like something from that, doesn't it? Yeah. It's, it's class. Honestly, I'll, I'll, I'll retweet it again in a bit. It's, 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 <laughs> so, it's so worth uh, sitting down and watching it. Uh, but it's not the only weird thing that, that uh, happened to City that season. Uh, it was a number, that was one of a number of strange things. Um, as Joe Roll mentioned earlier, they had a goal disallowed for a foul on Neil Sullivan at uh, a corner against Tottenham. That was before Sergei Rebrov won it for Spurs in stoppage time. The player that fouled the goalkeeper, it was his own defender, Sol Campbell. Um, They also had a game rained off against Ipswich in the League Cup where just this absolute deluge at uh, at Main Road where it, it just, like... I've never seen rain like it. This is Nicky Weaver, what he said to the podcast a few weeks ago uh, about that Ipswich rained off game. I just remember in the warm-up, the rain was coming down, the pitch was getting worse, the referee came out to have a look um, and you know it was touch and go, I think, whether the game was actually going to go ahead, but it did. Um, went 1-0 down quite early on um, and then we equalised and not long after equalising, the game was um, called off and to be fair, as a goalkeeper, it's really awkward and horrible position and conditions to play in, so um, so I, I wasn't too disappointed when it was called off. Um, but we ended up losing the replay anyway, so we'd probably been better off uh, carrying on. But uh, but yeah, that was uh, I think that was I think it was a quarter final of the League Cup. I think that's the furthest I ever got with the club in the League Cup. Um, and yeah, not like I say, not ideal for a goalkeeper. But uh, the referee made a decision, and and the pitch was pretty much unplayable. I think at that point, the ball was starting to get stuck. It wasn't really bouncing. Players were. You know, trying to dribble with the ball, and the ball was, you know, standing still in the in the ward. So it did become unplayable. This is the Blue Moon podcast. Did you go to that one, Dan? No, I didn't. I went to the Trafford Centre with my mum that night, and I remember us driving home, listening to the game on the car radio, and the rain was like so heavy that we could barely see feet, uh, three feet in front of us on the car. So uh, when it got called off, I wasn't surprised at all, actually. Yeah, I, I went to that, and uh, we got absolute. We used to park on, uh, around Claremont Road and walk it down to, to Main Road, and we got absolutely drenched. And we got like we we got in and. My my clothes were sopping wet, mm. and my dad sacrificed his ticket to the game to go home, get us some dry clothes, and come back. And by the time he got back to Main Road, the game had been abandoned, and we, <laughs> so we we got to, we got to change into some dry stuff and then and then go home. Um, 
one of the gifts in that in that thread actually is, uh, is is Kevin Horlock being kicked in the head in the replay, and it's it's honestly one of the most bizarre decisions not to give him a penalty for that because yeah. like the, the amount oh god it's like Terry Butcher the amount of blood that was there. yeah it's pouring from his, from the wound isn't it like, you'd get a red card for that nowadays I think would you never mind a penalty like it's definitely dangerous play that the, the foot is so high yeah uh, Graham Paul was the referee that night he also refereed City's FA Cup exit that season at Anfield. Uh, Liverpool won 4-2, but their opening goal came from a penalty that absolutely should not have been a penalty. Um, it, it was given when the referee himself fell over in the box during a, cl- a, a crucial incident. Um, I tried to grab the audio. The video is online, uh, but the audio is that bad. I just couldn't clean it up. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you have any memory of that, Dan? I sort of remember that game, and I did watch that uh, that clip back on your Twitter. Yeah, should that, should that not have been a penalty? No, the, it sort I, of looks like Weaver fouls him from that angle. Yeah, I didn't include the close up in the gif. I didn't. I, there wasn't enough time in there. But when right. you when you go to the close up, uh, Weaver he does that thing that goalkeepers do where he dives to the floor. Um, and goes, oh, hell, I'm not going to get the ball here, and just absolutely pulls out of the challenge. And Smeetzer at that stage has already decided I'm going down, and just there's no contact whatsoever. <laughs> um, but I, I, I can't decide if uh, Graham Paul saw the incident and was impeded by the fact that he fell over and kind of thought uh, it was probably a penalty. I can't decide if Graham Paul saw it and thought, actually, that is definitely a penalty and, and thinks he's seen some contact by Weaver. And I can't decide if Graham Paul's decided, oh, I've fallen over. To save my embarrassment, I better give a penalty for that incident. Um, of course, the City fans that were behind the goal that, that, that afternoon thought it was the third one. And I was in that, that crowd. as well. I, I had the habit of going to away games at that stage where City <laughs> weren't winning. Um <laughs> And I was in that away end, and I was absolutely adamant that time. Oh, he's only given that because he fell over. He's only given that to save himself the embarrassment. <laughs> it's probably true, actually. So what we're saying here is that if VAR had been a thing in, in 2001, City would have stayed in the Premier League and won the FA Cup. Yeah, I mean, there's no counterfactual. Yeah, you can't prove no, otherwise. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, that, that game at Anfield turned out to be Andy Morrison's final game for City as well. Uh, and I don't know if you remember, he, he almost sparked a fight when he was subbed off between mm. himself and the Liverpool fans. Um, this is what he told us about it when we spoke to him in 2012. I was hurting a bit because you know I'd been substituted, and uh, and although it's it's not right, but the, the players who who will come off if a manager has to make a, a 50-50 decision on taking one or two players off, and one player is going to look at him and throw his arms in the air, walk off the pitch shaking his head, you know, reluctantly shake the manager's hand, and then just go and sit down with a sulk, or a player is going to you know, jog off the pitch, applaud the fans, shake the manager's hand and sit down. The player who's going to do that will be the one that comes off, um, you know, because the manager doesn't need to have that hassle, you know. And, um, and you know, you try to be as professional as you can all the time, you know, and I felt it was an easy option to, to take me off. I said that to Joe. I wasn't happy about it. I got a load of abuse off the Liverpool fans when I sat down. Um, and, you know, I picked the, my bottle of water up and sprayed it all over them. Um, just to, to you know, antagonise them and be me. Check out exclusive City interviews on our website, bluemoonpodcast.com. In all seriousness, Dan, talking about the defence from, from that season, it was it was just that City let in too many silly goals, wasn't it? Weaver lost form. There were several shots that went straight through him in, in, in games where City had a one-goal advantage. There were some just horrid pieces of defending that, that just... The defence wasn't up to it, was it? No, well, I had a look at the league table yesterday, actually, and City scored 41 goals that season, which was more than Southampton, who finished 10th, but they conceded 65, which was more than Coventry, who finished 19th below them. So yeah. sort of tells you all you need to know about the... They, they weren't too bad going forward, but horrible, horrible defensively. Yeah, that, there's 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 one goal in particular that that stands out was um, Richard Dunn willing it against Klaus Jensen against Charlton, oh, like, loop, God, just yeah. looping over Weaver from the halfway <laughs> line, and you just kind of go, how is that got? You kind of yeah. that was in December, and you knew at that point. Well, if that's going in, then yeah, I'll tell you that yeah, the, the man who sits the man who sat behind me at Main Road at that time was. Um, he used to travel down from Middlesbrough for, for every game, and he had this really dry wit about him. Um, and he was really like in a in a in a sense that that was funny, not annoying. Yeah. And he, um, I just remember that incident happening. And as the ball was still on its way up off uh, Jensen's shin from the halfway line, he just said in this real deadpan voice, "It's in." <laughs> and 
Like, like it must have been five or six seconds that it took it to get over Weaver and into the net, and I just, I never, it just stuck with me at that point because I, oh, it's horrid, horrid day. Well, this season was all also we mentioned it last time I was on the podcast. We were talking about Sean Go to actually was the goal when he scored against Leicester off his back, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that Pablo one shot's got a back heel that day as well. He did. This will make you feel old. Actually, my um, my cousin had just been born either that day or the day before that game at Leicester and we were listening to it on the radio in the hospital when we went to visit him in the hospital and he turned 19 on Wednesday lovely lovely yep. stuff excellent <laughs> right thanks for that one um, <laughs> speaking of the defence this is uh, from match of the day as City drew one all with Coventry at Highfield Road um, the commentator is John Champion Granville and Etchell surprisingly restored to the side today he's taken an awful lot of stick from the supporters and was withdrawn from the firing line for his own well-being. So it was against Coventry that that Edgell was dropped. He scored an own goal and he had an awful time against Craig Bellamy at Main Road. He was subbed off to Booze at half-time and then he made his comeback against Coventry four months later. Uh, this is what he told us about uh, the, the whole thing from his perspective when we spoke to him in 2013. I was upset about the fact that the, the booze I was getting, but um, looking back and, and looking at the goals, I don't think I can... People said to me, oh, that, the header that I did for the on goal, I've done that hundreds of times in, in training, in, in games, in reserve games, in first team games. So it was not something I hadn't done, it wasn't like a freak thing, but um, normally the goalkeeper gives you a shout or he knows what I'm going to do and he, he just stands his ground. But on this occasion, Weaves decided to go to move to the side of the goal. I think if he'd have stood what like that. You see keepers do it. You see keepers do it all the time. They know what the defender is if he's going to head it back to, to the keeper. They stand, stand the ground and stand still. And he didn't. He moved to the side. And then the second one, I think it was a breakaway. We had a corner. Um, and I was the last man. I always stayed back for the for corners and uh, ended up 1v1 and tried to just guide him away from the goal, which I did. And he beat, he beat the goalkeeper at the near post, which I got stick for again, which I didn't understand. Um, but I was frustrated right, when Joe took me off. Um, didn't really get an explanation about as to why he'd done what he'd done. Then he left me out the next game, and then I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feature them until probably Boxing Day that year. I was going to say it was ironic, in a sense, yeah. that you, you came back against Coventry yeah. so um, and had a good game as well to, to kind of get back into the team. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I think he left me out and not giving me an explanation, but I sort of got it into my head and thought I'm just going to be strong and train hard and keep keep going and do what I do what I'd done all my career at the, at the club and that's what I did. And then I got a call, I was at home, um, I just took my dogs out for a walk actually, and I'd come back in and I got a call saying uh, be ready to play because you, you'll be playing on Boxing Day against Coventry, like you said, which was ironic. Get involved with the debate on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. Richard Edgell speaking to us there. Um, Dan, do you think he deserved the stick he got? I think sometimes he did, yeah, because he was crap, Edgell, let's be honest. Um, but on the whole, I think it was a bit harsh. I mean, I remember it being really brutal sometimes at Main Road. And, you know, he, he was a local lad who came through the academy. Uh, he loved the club. He just, he just wasn't up to it, unfortunately. I would say um, I can't really think of any Edgell, uh, Richard Edgell highlights apart from the penalty against Gillingham in the playoff <laughs> final, which was a brilliant penalty. Um but yeah, the the, the the abuse was really vitriolic and it, it surprised me actually because I follow Edgel on Twitter as I'm sure you probably do as well. He doesn't tweet very often but it's usually about City and you kind of think someone who, it can't have been much fun for him playing for City a lot of the time. He must have been able to hear the sort of abuse he was getting from the stands from his own fans and for someone like that to still maintain a love for the club all these years later I think that's quite surprising and a real credit to him actually yeah there were kind of factions I remember two very clear camps at that time in Main Road against that in that Coventry game um, there were boos from from kind of some areas, and then like other areas, just decided that oh no, this isn't on, and they started singing. There's only one Richard Edgell, and I can't think of another time when that song would have come out. <laughs> no, I don't remember that at all, actually. No. Yeah. Um, that season, the 2000-2001 season, was home to City's first ever Premier League hat trick. Um, it was scored by Paula Wontrop as Sunderland came to Main Road. Niall Quinn scored for the wayside on his return, uh, but those three goals from Wontrop helped City to a 4-2 win. But Manchester City aren't done yet. One shot on for the hat-trick! And he's got it! Main road erupts! This was at the time when, when City were... It was only the second game of the season, so we thought, actually, they've got that 4-0 loss at, at Charlton out of the way. That, that they'll, you know, they could do this now. There's, and 
when you think back to that time, there were some great performances really early on. That Sunderland game, I really went to, to Ellen Road and won 2-1. Um, they were the better team in that in the in the two, in the three two loss at, at Anfield, where Diddy Harman scored two world class goals. Mm. Uh, they won at Southampton. Uh, you know they they beat Bradford. That was the, the only time they had back to back wins all season. I actually went to that Southampton game. That's one of the few away games I've been to that they won. Um, so I mean, for a while it was looking up. Yeah, I mean they went from being a bit of a yo yo team up and down divisions to a yo yo team within the same season, didn't they? Really, you just never really knew what you were going to get from City. And another interesting little uh, thing that I picked up looking at the league table yesterday was City had the 10th the best away record in the division that year and the 20th worst home record. <laughs> they only won four games at home all season. And they only won four away, but, you know, it was a, in terms of the actual record, it was, it was the 10th best in the league, yeah. So they won eight games in the whole season. Yeah, um, I mean, it's just it's. I mean, we said before they didn't they didn't keep enough clean sheets to stay up, and they they, they were all right going forward. There was some like certainly in the in the early months, like the Gerard Vikings goal at uh, Ellen Road. I don't know if you remember. I tried to find vaguely, it on, on yeah. video, um, but he kind of takes a touch and volleys it into the top corner from yeah, the, from the, right, from the yeah. top uh, from the edge of the box. Yeah, yeah. They were, I mean, yeah. You say that the one shot Patrick game was really good against Sunderland. Um, that that was like a, a really promising night where, like you say. It sort of had that dreadful result at Charlton, but you thought, right, this is the real city that we're going to see this season now. Forget, forget that. And uh, unfortunately, it just it never really worked out. And they they signed um, Darren Huckabee mid-season as a kind of that felt like a bit of a futile last throw of the dice at the time. I think I think it was quite obvious that they were they were going to go down. And um, I remember that sort of looking like. Because it, because he came from Leeds, didn't he? Yeah, he's done quite well there. I remember thinking he's a good player, but he's not going to be enough to save us. Yeah, I think we knew at that stage. I mean, at yeah. the end of that season, Joe Royal was sacked. Um, uh, a decision that he says he wasn't expecting. Yeah, well, I wasn't. I certainly wasn't expecting. It. Yeah, I remember hearing about it at school actually, um, and being being shocked. You know, because we'd had this, we'd had this manager who saved us from the doldrums of Division Two, who'd got us back into the Premier League at the first sign of asking, and then it felt like the first sign of trouble. They'd just gone, oh, not good enough, sacked." Yeah. Um, I think you know, looking back, it was the right decision because I think I think Royal had taken City as far as he could, but um, it, did, it it was a shame to see him go. Yeah, it felt harsh. This is what he told us uh, when when we spoke to him about it. It was a shock only because I'd met Bernstein uh, the previous week, uh, who I'd always gotten very well with, and and did until the day I left you know there, there was never I think he was a terrific chairman and actually being without Bernstein was a mistake by City but I'd met him the previous week in a restaurant in the in the Curry Mile and um, we'd had a good chat about things you know about why we'd went gone down and this and the other and he challenged my staff you know he said he had great confidence in me and believed in me but not in my staff and uh, intimated that he, he wanted me to sack uh, Alex Stepney um, uh, John Hurst uh, Roy Bailey uh, and even Asa Hartford maybe and and I said well I disagree chairman I said the same staff that's seen us go up two divisions I said, well, I think we've been caught out. I think don't think we've had the best of fortune, but every relegated manager says that. But I think that had we had more money available to compete for the better players and make the quantum leap, that we might just have done it. And I said, and I do know this, the team that's going down is a better side than the team that came up. You know, with Steve Howie in the side, um, with Paolo Wanchop around, and, uh, and we'd left that meeting to meet again on Monday morning and discuss plans for the new season with, uh, as I thought, it, John Wardle and uh, David Makin. But when I arrived at the ground, it was a full board meeting. I went in and I was told that I was to be sacked. I've got to say, equally, as a manager of a relegated side, you, you know, no matter what you say, there's no mitigation in relegation, you're down. And... Uh, if they wanted to sack me for being manager of a relegated side, um, I would have no objections. Uh, I wouldn't be happy with it, um, but I can I can see the points. You know, the club wanting change. So when I started reading that we'd been a pub team and all that nonsense, and there was some uh, rather rather bad insinuations coming out from behind the scenes and, and I know the people I know where it was coming from 
and uh, quite honestly, it, it wasn't nice, and it, it wasn't nice to read that we'd been a pub team and all that kind of stuff, because the pub team had been promoted twice in three years as well. Please give us your backing. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. Joe Royal speaking to the podcast in 2013. Um, we spoke to the, the chairman at the time, David Bernstein, as well, and he said that, that they just wanted a change. Uh, this is what he had to say. I was disappointed um, with our performance that season. I thought we could have done better. And, um, you know, in the end, uh, the end of the season, Joe, Joe Royal went, which is a great shame in many ways because he'd done a great job over those previous two years. He, he really had, and he and I had a great relationship. But um, you know, we felt the, we needed to change, and we felt it was desperately important, having had the two, the two bits of success and then having a setback, that we were covered straight away. We could not afford to spend time in there, and we needed somebody who'd be impactful and really give us that sort of a new shot of momentum. And, of course, um, Kevin Keegan did that. He's a very particular sort of manager, a great personality, but, but certainly we all, we all felt as a board that he, he would be someone with that stature and that ability to you know, create excitement and, and, and create momentum and do something quickly because we, we just felt we couldn't afford to languish around there for two or three seasons. We had to, you know, having had that back-to-back promotions, we needed to get back up there quickly. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. You've made it this far, so don't give up now. David Bernstein uh, explaining the reasons for sacking Joe Royal in the end. Um, I think in a weird way though, Dan, we, we shouldn't we shouldn't focus on, on how it ended for Royal because without him, you know, who knows where City would be. No, definitely not. Like I think he was he was dealt a really tough hand when he took over at City, you know, with all the, the players that they had on the books and um you know, there's all there's all the, the sort of talk of them having like two dressing rooms because they had that many players and, and there was this real culture of failure around the club and not he didn't only turn the ship around and sort of get them get them steady again but he did a remarkable job to get him back at the leagues like a really really remarkable job and I think Kevin Keegan actually owes um, Joe Royal quite a lot because I think he took over a club who were in really good shape you know despite the fact they'd just been relegated they had some good players you know you look at the the sort of the signing of one chop and, and Huckabee and players like that um, they were they, they were signing... great things under under Keegan exactly yeah they, they didn't really it didn't really work out in their first season but in the following seasons they did so Keegan when he had, he had like a brilliant a brilliant championship team to take over and all right, he added it. He added a few uh, players, Berkovic and Pierce and um, Bernabeu and all that to it. But I think the foundations were, were really in place for him because of the team that Royal had built. So yeah, I think I think he probably owes uh, Joe Royal a Christmas card or something like that. Yeah, um, going to finish with a few ask the panel questions. Uh, we we tried to get a few questions from that era. Um, so uh, let's let's throw a couple of these uh, your way, Dan. Uh, if you want to send in some questions for next week, uh, don't have to be about this era at all because we're back to normal next week. Um, at Blue Moon Pod- Podcast is the way to do it on Twitter. You can email us as well through the website bluemoonpodcast.com. Uh, Kieran Murray's first up on Twitter. Uh, when you think of City's kits from that era, which players do you picture in them? Um, and this is fascinating because City had a, quite a lot of, I think, very clear kits that that, that kind mm. of time. I, I'm going to start with the laser blue home capa shirt. Who, who do you see in that shirt? Honestly, we mentioned him earlier in the show, and this is my honest answer. It's Peter Beardsley. I don't know why. <laughs> I think it's just Peter Beardsley is one of those names that crops up quite a lot when you talk about like players who you've you'd forgotten played for City or forgotten played for any any club. He's always like my go-to answer for that. And if you Google Peter Beardsley um, Manchester City, there's a picture of him looking really unhealthy in that kit, yeah. <laughs> like really, really, really overweight and unhealthy. So that's that. Honestly, is the first one that springs to mind. Yeah, mine's Lee Bradbury. Um, right. Yeah. I, I just I can't can't explain why. Um, he's, he's the one that that comes to for that one. Uh, the the kind of laser blue but white shouldered idos kit, the promotion kit and the mm. Premier League kit. Who who do you see for that one? I would have to say Mark Kennedy for that yeah. one, given that I had his his name on the back of it. Yeah. Yeah. Same for me. He there was there was one incident with Kennedy where I truly fell in love with him really early on. He, he scored a solo goal at Bolton. Oh, amazing and goal. It was, yeah, he picked it up, ran through the midfield, and it's the commentary on it. I think it's Alistair Mann commentating. I think he says, uh, Dick off peeling off one way, go to peel it, uh, go to go in the other, Kennedy going alone, and then it straight in the top corner, yeah. and it's just wonderful. Such a sweet left foot, that fellow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the red and black kit, the, um, the, the IDOS uh, stripes. Yeah, they didn't wear that very often, I don't think, did they, that kit? Um, no. But I would go with Gota. Yeah, I get Gota for that one. Wheeling away at Blackburn. Yeah, I get yeah. Gota in that one as well. Uh, yeah. How about the grey strip with the, the luminous socks? 
I'd probably go for Paolo Wanchop. Again, same answer, against yeah. Leicester, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I don't understand it, but Wanchop yeah. again sticks out with me. I, I don't see him against Leicester, though. I see him against, um, I think it's West Ham, just kind of looking all gangly up, for, up the top end of the pitch. Um, <laughs> and finally, Michael Harper asks on the emails, in the long run, do you think City getting relegated that season was a blessing in disguise? What do you think would have happened if they'd stayed up and ended up not hiring Kevin Keegan? I think that's yeah, that's a really good point actually. I think it was a blessing in disguise because like like uh, like I, like I said earlier, it's it, it gave them a chance to rebuild with a good a really good squad at that level. Um, you know, if, if they'd stayed up, they wouldn't have sacked Joe Royal, and I wasn't necessarily in favour of Joe Royal being sacked at the time. But I think when you when you look back, it it was the right decision. Um, so there's every chance you know they would have stayed up, and you know who knows who who they would have signed, and probably. At some point, it ended up going down anyway because they just weren't quite at the level. Joe Royal as a manager wasn't quite at the level, I don't think. Um, and then, yeah, they went down to the, the championship and they they, they got um, Bernabia, Berkovic, those sort of players who then set up the next era for City, got them back in the Premier League. And then when they got back in the Premier League, they were much better equipped for it. They had, the, they had a manager who was who was at the right level. They had a squad that was at the right level. So, uh, you know, I remember being pretty gutted at the time about the way that 2000-2001 that season panned out and, and City getting relegated. But when you when you look back on it, I think it definitely was quite an important thing in the club. You don't see the bigger picture at the time, do you? That's the, that, not, that's no. the thing. Yeah. No. Right, well, that's it for this week's Blue Moon Podcast. Thank you very much for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed it, then please head over to wherever you get your podcasts from and give it a rating and a review. It helps other City fans find the show and it helps us fund the show through the adverts as well. If you'd like to become a Patreon backer, then you can get an extra 20 to 30 minutes of both bonus podcast every week for just two dollars a month that's about one pound 60 in uk money and for that each month you'll get a podcast every week so that's about four or five podcasts for your money as well this week's is a precursor to today's show and it's all about the season before the one we've just talked about and that promotion at blackburn in the year 2000 special thanks to my guest this week dan burke thank you i'll be back next week so i'll see you then the blue moon podcast please support the show patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast